0: Welcome to Coming Along Nicely. We're two brothers, Rich and Tim, who recently went back to school. Every week, we're discussing one thing we're learning in our classes, and we want to invite you to come along with us. You won't believe the C.S. Lewis you've never seen before. That form of teaching
1: creates soulless people.
0: They have kind of produced like no, actually, it's just like salt water. Is there a good? Is there a God? Oh, this song, of cringe.
1: Yeah, this morning in Michael Jordan talked about.
0: Oh, did you take your exams yet?
1: Uh I don't I actually don't have any. I don't think I have a single exam test. I have a couple exam projects, but not tests. I lucked out this semester. Do you you obviously have some?
0: Well, I took one exam um in my spirituality class, and then in my addictions class, I have like a case study. That I'm going to do on Sunday. Hopefully, I'm giving myself enough time to actually get it all done. I I think I am. Um, but then, yeah, these classes will be over and the next ones start back up. You're sixteen weeks, right? Yeah i
1: I always forget that it's a little different for you. Yeah, so I'm we're mostly sixteen week classes, and we do have eight week classes as well that are online. Those are more like if you need a math, if you need a science, or just a gen general whatever. Mm. But we're mostly 16 weeks. But so you're actually going to be taking. Do Do you know what the other classes are that you're jumping into?
0: Um, I'm so I'm just taking one, and it's going to be abnormal psychology. Um, which sounds like it'll be super interesting. So, looking forward to that. But that starts, I think it starts on Monday. So I'll be cracking open the new textbooks and getting into that. But I'm looking forward to just having one class because two classes, it's it's been fun, but it has been a lot at the same time. So yeah. I'm I'm looking
1: at I mean, we're doing advising for what I'm gonna take next semester. And I might take some interesting classes, but I'm going to go down to three or maybe two classes from five. Which, like, it's, I'm an undergrad, so it's obviously different, and I'm doing this, like, full-time. But, yeah, it's, uh, even just thinking about scaling back feels really good. Yes.
0: Dude, like, halfway through this semester, I've been like, well, next semester or next term, I only have one class, so we'll make it through. Um, Do you feel like... But I guess with that being... Well, I was going to say, do you feel like you internalized? Like, that's a really, those are really quick classes. Oh, yeah. Like, that's one of the reasons I wanted to start this podcast is because it's like, what did I learn? Like, what what was it that I actually learned that week? I know I wrote a post and I took a quiz and I wrote like a paper. But like. What did I learn? Um, but I was talking to a friend of mine who's a counselor, and she was saying that because I was freaking out, like, am I supposed to know everything by the time I graduate? And she was like, no, like, that's your Essentially, your master's is your introduction. And then after that, you have supervision and you have like training after that. And you actually start working with clients. And that's where like it really starts to click and you start to like learn more. I I I don't know. It, but it does seem to go by very quickly. I understand why online and masters does eight week terms because people are busy and you want to get people through the program, but also like, I don't know. I I don't know if I, I like my in-person classes, the rare chances I get to take them. And I, uh, yeah, I think it could benefit to go a little slower. Yeah.
1: I do like in-person and slower. The in-person classes are slower. Cause when I was doing online, I would just sit down on Friday or Saturday and like do all of the work for a class on that day as much as I could at least. Oh yeah. And so it was a lot more intense and it was like shorter uh, sprints essentially. Whereas I go to class and maybe I've got a class two days a week or three days a week and it's like an hour and 15 minutes. And, you know, there's like small talk and like introductions and that sort of stuff. It's not as intense, but I definitely have learned to appreciate that. And I've also made myself take notes, which I have never been like a note taker. But Hmm. there is something about like for me, especially being older, A, and B, being like a writer and being in like a liberal arts like education for education's sake. I have realized more than I would have if I was like 20, that I am not going to remember this stuff if I don't somehow make an effort, like write it down. And this too, like you said, talking about it and these conversations are like recorded. So uh, yeah, I've definitely learned to appreciate like actually trying to
0: learn instead of just trying to get through the class, get through school. Yep. Yep. That's the one thing I, I told someone they were going back to like a, or they're going to start their undergraduate program. They're like, yeah, I think I'm going to work and I'm going to volunteer. I'm going to do all this stuff. And I'm like, look, like if you care about what you're in school, like learning, like don't, don't just try to get through school so you can go and work and go like, like don't like. Go to class and then be like, okay, but now I actually have to go to work. Now I actually have to go volunteer because I I kind of felt like at the end of my undergraduate program, I had robbed myself because I was like, what what did I learn? Yeah. Like, what, what did I actually get out of that besides the diploma? Yeah, I'm experiencing that too. Even
1: just, I don't know if I said this last week, but I'm experiencing that with <laughs> being in Florida because mm-hmm. we... Okay, so like we've established, we do 16-week semesters. And when I came back down for the fall, I I was like, okay, I've got two semesters left. And how it happened is I have been going to the beach every Sunday. So instead of waiting till I like feel like it, and then I'm like, oh, I don't have gas. I don't have time, this, that. I was like, I'm just going to go every Sunday. And in, just to myself, I was thinking, you know, I've only got so much time here. If I go every Sunday for the next two semesters, that's 32 weeks. And as soon as I Mm. thought that it just like hit me so hard, I've got 32 weeks left and that's like not a lot of time. Wow. It's, it's like, cause at that point I had already been back in school for more time than that. I had been back in a, I'd been back up in Ohio. I don't know why I can't talk for 16 weeks for the summer. And I was like, oh, my gosh, I'm going to blink and I'm going to be back in Ohio, which is good for some reasons, but it's also not good for other reasons.
0: Yeah, exactly. It's weird to hear. I don't know. It's weird when you look at your semesters, when you look at it as like smaller numbers, like, oh, I have two semesters left. It for some reason seems farther away than when you say, oh, I have 32 weeks left. That seems like it's like tomorrow. Yeah. Yeah. And that's why I wanted to. uh,
1: Specifically with the beach, just make a habit of it, because there are certain things that. I'm just wanting to enjoy while I'm down here and going to the beach is cool. It's also not that amazing that like you wake up in the morning, like jumping out of bed, like I should go to the beach today. And so last year, mm-hmm. the whole year passed, and I had the same experience you did, where I was like, man, there's some stuff I wish I would have, like, just done. And going to the beach is one of them. I, I lived down here for a whole year and probably went, like, six or eight times
0: the first year.
1: And I was like, I just need to oh, do wow. it. Cause, and especially once that 32-week number hit me, I was like, yeah, I'm just going to do this while I'm here. But... I did want to say uh, the classes I'm looking at taking next semester, I'm really interested in. I'm going to take uh beginner Spanish B. So I'll be oh. in there with like all the freshmen just learning how to say like, you know, BN, <laughs> which is not. I wish I was more advanced. I'm not. I I do really want to learn Spanish, though. And so I'm going to do that. And then I'm taking advanced expository writing, which is just perfectly suited towards what I want to do. But the other class I'm really interested in, and I'm looking forward to when you and I can talk about this, I think I'm going to take communication ethics. So, oh yeah, this is a class that when I first came down here, I was in it because there was like a choice of two or three uh, a choice between two or three ethics classes. And I picked that one because I worked in communications. And then I had to drop it to take another class. And I always really regret regretted it. And when it came back around to schedule, I couldn't do it again. And they only offered it in the fall, mm-hmm. but for whatever reason, they're offering it in the spring. And so I don't have to take it, but I'm totally going to take it. Uh, and it's like super in-depth, and i'm pretty sure one of the books is like either plato or aristotle one of them wrote a book that's just called propaganda and then there's like three yeah. other books but i'm really looking forward to that one specifically
0: that'll be ooh those'll that'll be a crazy class to hear you talk about
1: yeah yeah it'll be especially
0: because like i think there's a lot with that too That like, it'll probably help me remember with counseling because there's so much. Dude, the ethics, the ethics in counseling is crazy. It's not just like, oh, you're going to sit down and you can just give people advice. Tell them how to live their lives. Like, be like, oh, if I was in your shoes, I'd do this. Like, even those phrases right there are huge ethical concerns. Mm, Yeah. (laughs) Like ethical. It's like, you don't just go around giving your advice. Because clients aren't asking necessarily for it, which I know some people are like, wait, what is counseling then? Um, But like, I don't know. You can do a lot of harm to people that way because people are coming in like, oh, this person's an expert. And if they're saying I should do this, even when I don't want to or feel like it's right, I I, got to do it. I've been seeing a few
1: different. I, I feel like more and more I've been seeing people like circulating. Videos from TikTok that are Mm -hmm. essentially armchair counseling and sometimes from, Mm. I don't know if it's from counselors, but people who have enough credentials that they can kind of sound like they know what they're talking about. But the people who are recirculating these videos are like, this is so bad for society and this is so bad for the counseling profession because... Apparently, they're using like some of those, you know, thoughts and phrases and things that I, I'm not as well versed in it as you would be, but I, I saw one where they were kind of breaking down like, here is what this person is saying that is so not ethical. So I wonder if that's going to be some sort of like if there'll be some sort of focus on that in your profession in the future of how to how to stop people from doing that. Or maybe if there'll be some sort of public thing, public awareness of like, Hey, please stop listening to these people on the internet.
0: I see. I want to believe that, (laughs) but at the same time, like, I don't know. Look at all the fad diets that have existed over the course of like, even since like the 1950s, even since like the TV was invented. Yeah how how many like fad diets there there have been. Um, and then you put on top of that, the idea of like, people are going to find out this knowledge. You're going to have people who took like a couple undergrad classes in, uh in psychology and are like, oh my gosh, this changed my life, which is great. Like the knowledge, I'm glad that it's helping people change their lives. And it's still good knowledge to get out there. But like, as soon as you start going around on TikTok and saying, like, here's three things that could mean you are narcissistic, like, mo- more often than not, it, it's such simplified information that you're going to fall into it, which means that the person listening is going to freak out. Like, holy crap, I'm narcissistic. Like, what does this mean? They're going to start web emptying theirself. And now you've like thrown them into a whole like worse state of mind that, like, even if they are narcissistic, it's probably going to, I don't know. They they're not in the. You're not you're not giving them that information inside of a like relationship that's meant to help them. You've given them like that information within like a ten second TikTok that now is over, and that person has no one to go to for help except for the internet.
1: Right. Yeah. Let me let me jump into what I brought for this week because actually this is very related. So. Oh, perfect. Yeah. So we read this book in uh history and influence of cs lewis i always like saying the full name of the class cuz if i just say the class about cs lewis that feels <laughs> weird saying the history and influence <laughs> doesn't feel as legitimizes uh, prestigious it. yeah yeah well no it's it's more so for me like <laughs> going going to a christian university if i just reference to people like oh yeah my cs lewis class I just feel like that's, you know, (laughs) like if some if some athlete, you know, who's on like a sports scholarship was like, yeah, this morning in Michael Jordan, we talked about. It's just like, (laughs) okay you know, but no, this is the history and the influence of C.S. Lewis. But we I've probably said before, we pretty much read like a book a week. We read this book called The Abolition of Man. Have you heard of this? Hmm. No. okay so. It's one of his nonfiction books that a lot of these started as either essays or lectures, you know, spoken lectures or, excuse me, also like Mere Christianity started as radio broadcasts. Anyway, this is one of those that he, he took and then put into printed form. And it's really interesting. It's probably a little bit controversial if i had to guess i actually don't know but i would almost guess that it is and it apparently oh, wow. was ranked by one group like the sixth or seventh most influential nonfiction book of the 20th century that's what my professor said so you know i don't know what really group put that together yeah so that one was uh Abolition of Man was number six or seven. And then I think Mere Christianity made the list too at Number 80 or something like that. But
0: this book is. Which it's strange to hear you say that because I've only ever heard of Mere Christianity. Like maybe like I feel like when you think of C.S. Lewis, the book that people always mention is Mere Christianity. But here's this book that's. I guess so much more impactful than. it.
1: Yeah, I don't know if it's. It definitely wasn't bigger because Mere Christianity made C.S. Lewis like the second most recognizable voice in uh, England at the time, and it was in the middle of the war, so it was much more of like a popular work, I guess. And and you had said,
0: go ahead, if, real quick. You had said this too about Mere Christianity. I just think it's such a cool, interesting fact. You had said how it was radio broadcasts. Um, sorry, there's a truck driving by. I live on a very busy street, so if you hear the room in the background, I apologize um but do you wanna tell everyone real quick like what those broadcasts were from mere Christianity? I just think it's so interesting if you don't know already. yeah, so the war was going
1: on. I wanna say World War two he also fought maybe in World War one, anyway, World War Two was definitely going on for mere Christianity and the BBC asks him to give these radio talks, I guess to encourage or give hope to people, talk about positive things in the midst of you know the war. Uh, obviously, like I mean, London was getting bombed and stuff, right, so it was it was pretty yeah, crazy times, so he started doing these and he must've been known enough that they asked him to do it in the first place, but it, it became like a popular, you know, stranger things or like serial, the podcast, like it became one of those. And so he kept writing more and more stuff. And so mere Christianity is, I think three books. And the first one is more, more similar to what we'll get into with the abolition of man. It's more, I guess uh, philosophical, you know, like, is there a good, is there a God? He starts very broadly and I, I guess he does sort of get to Christianity, but it's, it's a very philosophical approach. And then I think book two is what Christians believe. And book three is how Christians are supposed to live. But he was, he was, I think, a little caught off guard. Like he had to keep producing this content because it, it blew up so big. And yeah, they say other than Winston Churchill, he became the most recognizable voice uh, to England at that time.
0: Which is just crazy. I'm trying to think, <clears throat> excuse me. I'm trying to think like, okay, so I'm in my house or a bunker As we're getting bombed, and I'm listening to C.S. Lewis, and I'm nervous to try to think this way, but I'm trying to think what if we were in the same situation today, like getting bombed every day, and we'd have to go into our basement, like what is it that we would have to listen to? And I shudder to think that it's not going to be mere Christianity. Yeah, and it's probably not going to be anything near as good. Yeah, I mean
1: who knows. I think that that's probably true but at the same time when covid hit and like the I'm talking like the early days like before lockdown when covid hit uh and we thought like we didn't know, you know, if a, if a, if half the population was going to die or anything uh we did right away see a lot more people going to church or then obviously watching church online once the lockdown happens. So you never know. I I think that, and Lewis is, is good at this. His writing style is very like he starts with a problem and then gives a solution. So he's very much like, Hey, here's reality. Here's where we're at. Here's the way things are. So what are we going to do about that? And so it kind of met the moment. And so maybe I th- mm. I think the same thing could happen today. Obviously it's not going to be on the radio, but yeah. So, so this book, the abolition of man actually happened before it took place as lectures before mere Christianity. And I think it was also printed before mere Christianity. So it's earlier and it definitely wasn't ever as popular, but reading it. Okay. So, so I took another ethics class for, just my ethics requirement and it was fine. It was all right. It kind of described, you know, six or eight different ethical frameworks, but I didn't feel like there was any real good, like discussion. Whereas this book in a hundred pages was what I wanted from the ethics class. So, Oh yeah, I would, I, I'm still working through it in my head. Uh, and so I don't even know if I agree with everything that's said. And like I said, it maybe could be controversial, but I would definitely recommend it highly. And I definitely think most of what he's saying is good. But I- I'll get into
0: it. There's two parts I want to read. So, the- so we've got to title this episode. You won't believe the C.S. Lewis you've never seen before. <laughs> yes, clickbaiting C.S. Lewis. I'm not sure <laughs> if, if that
1: would be effective. But it's so, ooh, what did I just do? Okay. So it starts out with uh in the first section, I think this one is three books too. It's I don't know why he does it that way. In the first section, he's talking about an English textbook that, you know, is from such and such school. Two schoolmasters put this English textbook together, and they're kind of talking about. How language, uh, how do you say, essentially what they're getting at in this English textbook is if you see something that is really beautiful. If you see a mountain range and you say, oh my gosh, mountains are beautiful. Mountains are spiritual. Really, what is happening there, this book says, is that you aren't actually ascribing any value to the mountains. The way that language works is that statement to say like, oh, mountains are like spiritual or to say they're like beautiful. That is revealing your thoughts about the mountain.
0: Does that make any sense? Hmm. And that's maybe not. (laughs) Okay, so you're not. So you're not labeling the object you're labeling your experience with the object.
1: Yeah, and maybe maybe it's not the best example that I'm giving, but yes, that's it. Like in other words, language is always shifting and it's it is somewhat arbitrary. I think that's maybe where I would disagree a little bit with Lewis, but I see what he's saying too. What is happening is Is yes, essentially communication having to do with like real value, real worth of something is sort of being reduced down to okay, well, you are experiencing an emotion in your brain that makes you think that nature is beautiful, but really nature isn't anything. You're saying nature is beautiful, but what's underneath that is Tim thinks nature is beautiful. And so hmm. So so Go ahead.
0: Sorry, go ahead. No, I just I have a lot of questions, but I feel like asking questions midway is going to have you jump all over the place.
1: Yeah, well, that's that's very uh accurate of how I speak. So so this is the English textbook and Lewis is reading it and he is essentially taking issue with that. He's taking issue with the idea that there could be no value or worth in anything that it's all, uh, that it's all shifting sand essentially. And so he, he, I don't know how deep I want to get into this, but he's taking aim with these people who are writing and he's saying that uh english is okay well i'm I'm not even gonna get into that so there's this quote and this is what i want to read he's talking about how if you constantly remove the beauty from everything or if you have a framework this is really what he's saying if you have a framework that doesn't allow for objective worth to certain things then you create what he calls men without chests. And so that's the that's the title of the first section of the book is Men Without Chests. And he's talking about how, how the philosophy that these schoolmasters have and that this English textbook have in giving fully to the idea that meaning is just a... I guess psychological response that, that meaning is meaningless, right, right. that meaning is meaningless. You, I think this is meaningful, you think that's meaningful, it's subjective, and that's that. So he says the problem with that is that what English should be doing, okay, so he gives this other example of um, I think it's like an advertisement. And the advertisement is, it's probably for like a hotel or something, a resort. And it's really cheesy. It's like, you know, come stay here and you'll feel like you're living in the, what, you know, oasis and all your desires will be fulfilled. And so the schoolmasters like tear that apart, which you should, like, that's not good writing. But Lewis says, okay, good, good. You tore that one apart. But what you should do then is give one of the great poets or one of the great writers who has described you know the desert or an oasis in a beautiful way and teach kids to see the difference so in other words don't teach kids that that language is fully arbitrary and that meaning is meaningless teach kids how to have really good taste that they can see an advertisement and be like, that sucks. That's chintzy. That's playing on my animal desires. Teach them to see that and then teach them to see great classic literature and be able to find something beautiful in it. And so the phrase men without chests, you might think that that has something to do with like courage or bravery or something. It doesn't. He's talking about essentially that, form of teaching creates soulless people. And so here is the quote that I wanted to read. He references people who have never been able to conceive the Atlantic as anything more so than million tons of cold salt water. And so that Mm. in the context, that quote, he's kind of saying you can take bad examples of people talking about the ocean and you can kind of point and laugh at people for having an emotional response to the ocean. But then what happens is this. People think that the ocean is just salt water. And his point is, no, there's something human too. You go to the ocean and you see the waves and you see how vast it is. He's saying that should do something to you. And, you know, like just speaking of you and I, I'm more of an ocean person. You're more of like a mountains person, I think. And so there is a little wiggle room for that. But what Lewis is saying is like, no, you can't say that like, like people have these experiences with beautiful things and you can't debunk it. That's his word. He uses debunk. I think today we'd use, you know, problematizing everything or deconstructing everything. This idea that, there can't be anything good because we just know how to pull it apart.
0: And he's saying like, Ooh, okay. Yeah. Th- he's saying that if I can hop in real quick, go for it. Well, so you had said the word, the word deconstructing. Um, and I don't want anybody here who is, is deconstructing. If you're listening, I'm, I'm not one of those. Who's like, don't deconstruct. It's bad. No, think critically about your faith. But I think the toxic side, where deconstructing becomes a bad thing, is where you start to boil down truths into quips and into facts, if that makes sense. Yeah. you're essentially taking, you know, scripture, or whatever your belief is, which is a, a truth, and you're wanting to boil it down into, like, little facts. Which makes me think of how you would define the ocean. You're taking... You know the truth of the ocean, the the beauty. You're, you're kind of instead of it allowing it to be a big grand thing, you're boiling it down to like to facts, to like kind of into like um actuallys. Like, uh, no, the ocean isn't a grand expanse or whatever you want to call it. Whatever, I'm not. I'm not a poet. You're going to school for that. Um, but you kind of reduce it to like, no, actually, it's just like salt water, um. That comes from this, this, and that, and I don't know. Maybe some people out there are really impressed by the facts, but there's more to there's more to our human experience than just factual scientific knowledge. Now, scientific knowledge is crazy. Like, I'm glad that you know what was it the James Teller. I don't
1: telescope? know telescope
0: well, that just want oh of- I, I want to say Bell. Am I? I don't know. Maybe, but like. Being able to see pictures of galaxies that are as numerous as stars is crazy. Like science is amazing. But you shouldn't if you just look at that and all it is to you is is light created by fission. Like you're missing the point of existence, which I think is what you would say C. S. Lewis means by men without chess, you know, men without feelings.
1: Yes. A thousand percent. He really foresaw. Like you said, um, actually he a hundred percent saw where we were going and it's really, it's really true. So speaking again of like religion, uh, this is another like conversation I've seen going on online is some people post these videos where, uh, it's people who are like leaving the church, deconstructing their faith or whatever. And they're like. I used to go to church and sing and think that I was feeling God's presence. Think that I was feeling uh, connected to something larger than myself. But then I grew up and realized that that is a psychological response that it's Mm. playing on my feelings. And they're, they're posting with this with kind of the attitude of like, haha i grew up and moved on and again there are things that like churches do with whatever that like yeah maybe you needed to leave that church i we get it but it's not the dunk you think it is to be like oh man remember when i thought that music was powerful you know what i mean (laughs) It's like, you can, yeah. you are a hundred percent entitled to say like, Hey, I don't think I'm a Christian anymore. I don't, I don't believe this stuff anymore. Like, yeah, sure. But it's not a dunk to remove. Like, man, remember when I, when I remember when I felt like, remember when I was just a stupid little kid and I felt like I was connected to something larger than me. No, dude, that's just like, it's just frequencies. And they go into my ear hole and vibrate the whatever, you know? And so that's his point.
0: Which is like, there's, um, I think it was when I was learning, it, uh, maybe last semester about the, uh, what was it? Stages of development. That's what it was. Developmental theory. Um, and there's all these different ones. I think the one that is most popular is Eric Erickson's like bio psychological, social, biological, psychological, social model. Or by psychosocial, um, which is like, hey, in all these fields you develop, they kind of overlap each other. It happens in different, you know, different ways. But there's tons of theories. And one of them was an uh, evolutionary theory. And Mm. it was interesting. Like, as you know, as a believer, as a Christian, I still thought the evolutionary model was very interesting because it talked about how. You know, the reason we have feelings of love, the reason that humans have these experiences of close relationships, the reason that, you know, we are the way we are is because our young take a crazy long time to mature to the point where they can take care of themselves. So if we don't biologically have these chemical reactions that make us love our young, even when they're not our own. Like that's going to be the death of a species. And that's crazy interesting. I took it and I kind of like reflected a little bit and I was like, yo, God, like, thanks. (laughs) Thanks for that. Um, But if you just boil it down to it's, um, actually, like you said, I think I love what you said. It's not that much of a dunk to be like, um, I don't actually love people. That's just a chemical response in my brain. Yeah. Like that's like Rick and Morty, the lifestyle. Totally. And let me read
1: this this other quote, because uh, this kind of encapsulates it. He says, in the second place, I think these schoolmasters may have honestly misunderstood the pressing educational need of the moment. They see the world around them swayed by emotional propaganda. They've learned from tradition that youth is sentimental, and they conclude that the best thing they can do is to fortify the minds of young people against emotion. My own experience as a teacher tells an opposite tale. For every one pupil who needs to be guarded from a weak excess of sensibility, or being too emotional, there are three who need to be awakened from the slumber of cold vulgarity. And this this is one of the quotes that people pull from this book a lot. The task of the modern educator is not to cut down jungles, but to irrigate deserts. Hmm. And so it's that mindset of, yeah, don't be taken by emotion and you'll, you'll grow out of some of that. But also there needs to be something in your chest. Like you need to be alive otherwise. And this is another quote. He says at the end, he says, if, if men make themselves nothing more than raw material, then they're going to be nothing more than raw material.
0: Hmm. Man.
1: Yeah, it's very uh I feel like I'm always on here kind of like prodding at the uh psychological side of what you do because I'm trying to figure out, I'm trying to understand where where we go. You know, I think that we need counseling i think we need mental health for a lot of reasons that are evident in our society but i think kind of the popular level obsession of people doing like the fast food version of it on tiktok like it actually ties in so much to what we were talking about earlier it's like yeah but we don't want to just become a big bag full of electrical responses
0: yeah well and that's the the thing that's been so interesting about my spirit, my spirituality class, my addictions class, even like when I was taking theories, which is like all the, all the different theories of approaching counseling, um, like cognitive behavioral therapy, which, you know, you've probably run into even just through TikTok. Um, gestalt, person-centered. I really loved gestalt theory and existential theory. And, and it, to tie what I'm learning currently with back then too, like meaning and purpose is so important to humans. Um which I think like, you know, we grew up in church and a church that kind of helped ask that question a lot. Um but I think even like it's important to evaluate continuously because if we live without meaning, if we live with nothing in our chest, if we live and we're just raw materials. I think very quickly you kind of like. You kind of lose it. Like even if you're listening to this and you're not like religious, like you should still. Value your existence. Maybe even more so. That's a big part of existential theory is like, hey, you're going to be dead. So if you just look around and this is just. Atoms and it's meaningless and it's just going through the motions and it's just everyday life like yo dog like. The timer's like ticking. Enjoy it. Find someone who you can commit your whole life to or find a group of people who you can't live without because of the way they make you feel. And and don't like give up on that. I, I, I don't know. I think a lot of counseling is you're kind of just this is so cliche. I hate that I'm going to say it. You're kind of just a hope dealer. You're just <laughs> you're just slinging the hope instead of the dope. Um, But I think it's, I think it's really true. Like addiction recovery, Alcoholics Anonymous is hugely successful. What are they? They are overtly spiritual. Yeah. Like they, they tell all their people like, Hey, spirituality is going to be how you get through this, whatever your connection to a higher power or higher like meaning is, is going to -to one-to-one correlate to your recovery. Like, people can come in and not have a higher power belief. Like, that's fine. It still works for people who are atheist or agnostic. But it's going to work because they still have spiritual practices like meditation, like meaning making and journaling. And, like, it's, it's a hugely spiritual process. And I think that, you know, that kind of, um, actually living without being able to have time. To encounter spiritual stuff like like mountains or oceans, I I was thinking even earlier today, I was listening to um, I was playing my playlist at work and I listened to this remake of the I'm a creep song by that's Weezer, right? Is that Weezer (laughs) Radiohead Radiohead, Um, which I think is just that song just always gets me in my head in a in a good and bad way. It invokes feelings. But I know that if that song, I literally thought, man, if this song was playing and a certain coworker was there, they might say like, "Oh, this song, uh, cringe," or I might even say it to defend myself. Oh, this song doesn't make me feel things. That would be uh, so cringy. Um, but like, why? You know, is that is that strictly? Let me ask you this question: Do you think that idea of, oh, I'm not having an emotional experience. Um, is that like modern that we're pushing that away or has that existed before? I mean, you're kind of battering around in more literary fields than I am. Like, is this a, a modern thing where we don't want emotion or has it been around for a while? I think this is, this is
1: totally my just evaluation right now. I think that there's always been like, you know, the, <laughs> emo artist or whatever who's like oh everything's meaningless like it's not just a phase mom you know that kind of
0: <laughs> despair
1: <laughs> but i think that what lewis is pointing at is a a it's a it's a way of seeing the world and what it's motivated by he he kind of talks about this in one of his other books is we live in a world that like we cannot tell people that one way is right and one way is wrong and i mean this is what this is what deconstruction and i'm using that in like the literary sense is is it's looking at the binaries of the past and showing how things weren't as binary binary as we thought and so then it it just breaks apart the whole evaluation and that's the example that lewis gives at the beginning you know oh well you say that that's beautiful but that's only subjective he again uses the term debunking everything i think Mm -hmm. we would call it like problematizing everything but so to answer your question i think that we have all learned to problematize everything and so i think it's modern in that sense that we've just decided that that is the good that that it's it's proper to not believe anything. And so I think that sort of the widespread is, nature of that is more modern postmodern really.
0: Well, true. Um is that okay, this is what I'm thinking of. Is that a did we start with the mountain like oh that mountain's not beautiful it's this or did we apply this for other reasons and now it's it's just kind of spreading everywhere um the thing that pops into my head and and sorry if this is a bit graphic for anyone out there um but i can remember even back in high school like after This is after 9-11, probably early high school when we were like still over, like in the war in Iraq. Um, And especially nowadays, too, with the war in Ukraine, you can see some pretty graphic stuff from war fields easily. And sometimes not even intentionally. Um, I could get on Reddit and be on like our unexpected where it's just oh, hey, I didn't expect that, and you you'll see like a cute thing where it's like oh, I didn't know that was going to be a dog, ha ha ha, and you'll see another one. It's like oh, that person is dead. Um, and I think in those instances, because and especially as kids, like kids full, dude, the Bo Burnham song about Welcome to the Internet. Oh my gosh, every parent mm, should watch yeah. that. Um, but it's uh. Do you kind of you said earlier that C.S. Lewis said something about like if you make if you remove like the meaning from man or if you make man just matter. Is that what it was? Um, raw materials. Yeah. Raw materials. If you make man just raw materials, that that's all he is. I, I can see how because of the stuff we've seen um, and even this is kind of. You know, where a lot of people got poked and prodded during like George Floyd's death and Breonna Taylor and um, Trayvon is like, hey, if we look at these people as just raw materials and remove the emotion from them, which is seen as like a good logical thing, like, oh, that's not a person who's like getting killed in war. That's just a statistic, a casualty. Um does that then eventually spread back into everything else? Like we might use it initially as a survival mechanism for ourselves to keep ourselves from being, getting uncomfortable, but is that where it eventually then spreads into our ability to make meaning elsewhere. And, and maybe it's not even that those things are related. Maybe it's connected to something else, but I don't know, just tossing the old idea around. Yeah. I, I'm
1: not sure I, I a hundred percent followed part of that, but, like two examples I can think of. Here's how I see it play out. And one is large scale. One is small scale. So you see. Uh, you see for us. Like a war take place. After nine eleven On certain pretenses. And certain emotions that we had been attacked. And then. You know, for me at least, because I was just literally a little kid, uh, when it happened, you grow up and realize, like, oh, there are some other factors at play, like there's a whole lot of oil, <laughs> you know, on the table. And mm-hmm. it kind of maybe seems like some of our allies like were involved in this and we haven't fairly uh addressed them. And so you see things like that. And what happens is, like, those might be, you know, perfectly fair, valid things. But then the next time there's a war, you think that there cannot be a right cause. Mm. Like, there can't be a just cause because you you have this idea in your head that everything's corrupt. And then that can that can get down to the granular level of, so, okay, so I was watching one of these videos on YouTube where it's like, scamming scammers you know so like this guy like pretends to be an old gullible lady yeah me too um yep and he's like he he's waiting for a scammer to call him or email him or whatever and then he scams them back and there are people down in the comments of one of those videos it's like um actually you know haha very funny but that guy's probably just trying to provide for his family by scamming these people for what they're worth. And it's like, gosh, I'm not going to say there's zero truth in that, but that's like not a good excuse, you know, like, yeah. And so it gets down to this point where literally you can't even say that robbing somebody's life savings is wrong. Yeah. And I think that's where we're at now is like, you see corruption, you see, old binaries and realize that they're not all that they were cracked up to be. That's all like real. And like, yes, I get that. But then you can't just follow that. That train literally leads nowhere. Like there will be nothing of meaning left unless you at some point jump off and say, Hey, I don't get all of that and all everything, but here are the things that are meaningful to me. Like music is meaningful to me. And at the end of the day, I I don't have to be able to explain it. I can just say it, and that goes back to what you were saying of counseling, like helping patients realize what those things are for them. And I don't think that most people have been given permission to believe in things and find meaning in things and just enjoy things.
0: See, okay, so I'm hung up on what you said about the scammer. And the people in the comments saying, "Well, actually, that person is just trying to feed for their family," because the reason that that person is saying that person is just trying to feed for their like feed their family, even though yes, it's wrong what they're doing, is because that person is attaching value and meaning. They're having that empathetic experience of like, "Hey, I see a picture of a man who's committing a crime to feed their family," like, which is an empathetic response. But you're also then saying like, if you put too much value on that, then you're not able to put value on the crime of like, hey, well, they're doing a crime to do it, which there is this whole grand tragedy of it, where we should be able to acknowledge the tragedy of it is like, hey, if your only option to care for your family is crime, like that's, that's a grander tragedy than just a family being hungry. Or a person committing a crime, or a person having a crime committed against them—that's a—that's a huge like tragedy. I I know for a fact there's probably been amazing books written by that. Um, so I'm not trying to make like a contrarian point. It's just interesting that that's where they put. Yeah, it is. A, tragedy is a great word
1: for it, and I think what happens a lot of times in with deconstruction is that there were old binaries and really what people end up doing is they end up just role reversing the oppressor oppressed binary. And so you can kind of read into, you know, you can read. Okay. So yeah, what you said, you can read empathy into any scenario to the point that, you know, it's literally not even wrong to like rob somebody because, well, do you know their story? And it's like, well, their story might be tragic. And here's my turn for a cliche. Like the whole two
0: wrongs don't make it right. Uh, Okay. So with the whole, man, this is, this is getting my brain running now because you had also mentioned earlier, the idea of going back to like, You know, growing up with like the war on terror and even before that, like this is a little bit before us, the war on drugs. Uh, And there's just all these things that as time goes on, it's like, well, was this the real reason? Well, was this the real reason? Well, was this the real reason? And it kind of covers your way of viewing things in this very contrarian way of viewing things. Even that person who's, you know, talking about their deconstructing experience on TikTok when it comes to religion. Like, once again, this is a new framework for like, oh, even though it might look good, it's probably bad. Um, I'm not saying you shouldn't be able to think critically. But I think where this line of thinking gets us is that we're contrarian, maybe even to ourselves, like where we feel like it goes back to C.S. Lewis's point. We look at a mountain and we almost tell ourselves. Like, oh. I'm having this experience, but really it's just this. Or I listen to I'm a creep, the, you know, song. And instead of kind of having this emotional experience that, you know, helps me go on a journey to better myself or to wrestle with something internally, I'm like, oh man, but this song is so cringe. Like, I don't know. I don't know if I'm making sense, but is it kind of just like, because we've been taught that you should kind of second guess everything. This is now the byproduct of that is like, now we even second guess things that once provided us meaning to the point where it doesn't help us avoid being taken advantage of. It just kind of prevents us from attaching value to anything because there's probably an angle where it doesn't seem as valuable to another person or in another context yes yeah i think you are making sense like
1: put put shortly you can um actually anything and the guy uh, i actually (laughs) okay so i don't know how to pronounce his name i don't know if it's derrida or derrida and I'm such a noob. One one of the things I just said is very wrong. And people are probably laughing at me. But he's the <laughs> father of deconstruction. And uh, he... <laughs> I haven't watched the documentary. I was actually thinking this just like two days ago. I need to watch it. But apparently they made some sort of documentary about him. I'm going to go with with... I'm not even going to say his name because I'm going to be so embarrassed one way or the other. But they started making a documentary about him and they started deconstructing him and they started deconstructing his lectures on deconstruction. And so it just is one of those things that it never ends. And so I think that, like, I do not demonize deconstruction because I see the value in it and I see how even Mm. people who are against deconstruction use it and they just don't realize that they're doing it so i i don't demonize it but i think of it as sort of like when there's a wildfire and they do oh gosh i don't think controlled burn is the word for it but where you burn it is it where you do the perimeter you you purposefully burn the perimeter so that the fire can't escape that yeah that's sort of how i i think of it and this this maybe sums it up perfectly. This is why I like literature. And this is why I write music to make people feel things. This is what you are talking about with counseling, helping people uncover their values and their purpose. It's both versions of the same thing, which is saying like, hey, there, there is meaning. Like there just is. And at a certain point, you just got to figure it out and say, here's mine. And there's a lot more we could talk about with that. But if you don't do that, deconstructing everything or debunking everything or problematizing everything, it never ends. And then you get to it, it'll take what you, you said. Yeah. yeah. Meaning is meaningless.
0: Man. Isn't it like. I know this is such like an old cliche, too. And to our. Aunts who are out there listening to this podcast because our mom sent it to them, you're not even going to know what Rick and Morty is. (laughs) But I find it so interesting how, like, that show got so popular looking and kind of setting up characters who were terrible because of how zero summed out they got with life. Like, life is meaningless. Um, And these characters go on a journey of, kind of learning to attach more meaning to things. But the reason that they were so like loved is because people were like, finally, some people are saying what's true. It is all meaningless. And so they became like heroes at the beginning of their journey instead of like, as they go through it. Um, Which I think is just kind of, I don't know, crazy. It's like our, our society is looking for people who get it.
1: So let me, let me add to that, that show, it starts out and it pokes fun at a whole bunch of things and it has this nihilistic bend to it and people Mm. that resonates with some number of people, but then that show grows and it becomes like a cultural phenomenon. And then you're left. If you adopt this worldview being like, dang, another one ruined. You know, because now this little show that was like us against the world or us against, you know, us in our belief system has ascended to the point where now it is the bad guy. Does that make any sense? No. Yeah. Yeah. Like
0: that's Which the thing that. Which I wonder with that, too. Go ahead. Uh, well, that's
1: that's the thing that happened with uh, this guy is like he's he's the little guy and he's he coins deconstruction and he's doing all these lectures but then it becomes so influential and it 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 always becomes the snake eating its own tail but anyway you you mm. go ahead with what you're going to say
0: no that's that's a really good way of putting it is a snake eating its own tail um which maybe there's even like an idea to the concept of like original sin in that and like sin itself or or evil or whatever you want to call it is it just takes things to the point where it just consumes itself, like lust just consumes another person and consumes you in a process addiction, just addiction, you know, breaks down your own body as you're trying to enjoy itself and tells your body that you need to live with it. Like, I don't know. So that's an interesting thing. But that wasn't even what I was going into. Um, What I was going to go into is, I think the other thing with the ability to um actually everything and have this nihilistic view that like nothing matters is that we do still think that some things matter. Um, like there are still things that matter to us, but those things become so hyper focused when nothing else matters. Once again, this is all theory. I'm not like, I'm not in politics. I'm not in philosophy. This is just where this conversation has us kind of talking at this point. um, but like I'm thinking of this in like a political sphere nowadays um, where like what I was saying earlier, where like maybe as a self-defense mechanism, it should be uncomfortable to see somebody else hurting. So I tell myself that, that person, I don't want to get too attached to their story and see the tragedy in it. So I I rationalize it as like numbers or just make sense or they got themselves in that position, whatever. Um And we start doing that all over the place, no matter what side of the spectrum you're on politically or viewpoints or whatever. So now that we're able to remove the value from the other person, I'm actually them or deconstructing their viewpoints or deconstructing them as an individual. It makes it that much easier. When we. Do have a disagreement for it to be such a huge deal because we've almost removed their value from the equation? Question mark? Yeah,
1: I think so. I definitely see it play out in politics. And that's where, so what I read from this book was like part one. And he goes into not politics. He kind of, I guess it is politics. He goes into how people are going to be ruled and it's very dystopian. And that's the part where I'm like, I need to make perfect sense of it before before I fully recommend it. But I do I do recommend everybody read it. But uh that's a long way of setting up. He talks about how, how uh absent of values, we will no longer educate people, we'll condition them. Mm, yep. And he'll say that there there's another kind of quotable moment in there he talks about what used to be propagation becomes propaganda. So in other words, we used to pass on to our kids, Hey, here are the things that are important in life. Like take these hold, hold tight onto these and live your life versus like conditioning people with impulses because that's all that we really think they are now. And the reason i brought that up is is cuz you brought up politics like i this might might just be me i see this so strongly that nobody on either side believes in anything they've just been conditioned at the things they don't like and they've been conditioned at what to say when the other team is brought up yeah Like I know it is really cliche to say like, oh, people are just talking beside each other. But if you actually would like transcript political conversations, you would see that people are talking about people's responses to each other are totally irrelevant of what the thing that was said before was, you know, it's Mm -hmm. just I've learned that, you know, if you take Trump and Biden, if you take Trump and Hillary before that, like. Nobody is articulating affirmative. Here's how I'd say it. The last two elections, I think more people were voting against the other guy than voting for their guy and fill in which whichever of those names it is. But that's our political landscape right now is nobody is doing anything affirmatively. It's trying to tear down the other team. And like, here's an, here's we're so far deep and just like the, I'm about to give a sports analogy is what I'm winding up for. But like, (laughs) like in football, there has to be offense. Like nobody wins by tackling the other team and you have to tackle the other team. You can't let them get through, but you have to cross a line into the end zone. Does that make any sense? Like there is a place for defense but you also have to affirmatively be fighting for something to win. And no, that's the part that makes I don't it see right now.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So. Because it seems like now it's all. I was actually thinking the same thing with like hyper defense. It's less of like actually trying to accomplish something. And it's more. Making sure that what you're afraid of in the opposite side doesn't happen. Yeah. Not by necessarily taking affirmative action to do the opposite, but just by making sure the other side can't get hurt or doesn't get its power. Um which is like you said, like that's not gonna if there's something you're actually really passionate about, like go and be an active I, I think that the fear of defense or needing to be on defense is actually making people do less. It's making our world worse. Like instead of It being like. Instead of us having, you know. No, I'm not. I don't think episode five, I should be saying what I want to say in this podcast. But essentially, (laughs) essentially, what I will say is, is if you are afraid of something or if there's a picture of the world you want to see, go and do that thing. Um, If you if you want the world to be a better place if you want to stop the evil from existing in the world start by giving a pie to your neighbors and you know going and volunteering somewhere that meet that like values that that could use the volunteer work a soup kitchen or or go and deliver meals to homeless people in your area or go and Join the Amish and building a home for someone, whatever makes value to you, go and do that instead of sitting at home and watching TV and feeling the defense reaction of I don't want the world to be this or or getting on Twitter and and doing all that. Like it's not accomplishing anything besides making us more hyper afraid.
1: yeah. Uh, I'm just gonna do it. I want to take that beautiful moment you just had and transition into a shameless plug or maybe a shameful plug. (laughs) Um, I wrote a thing, I wrote a post on Substack about it. It's called Hungry Heart, based on the Springsteen song. And Mm. it was before I ever read this book, but it was this concept because it means a lot to me of like, logicking the, uh, heart out of everything. And so if you want to go read that, that's my version in like a five minute read of what we've been talking about so far. But anyway, um, I should flip it to you. So what, what have you been learning about in class? Oh man, we're
0: already an hour and 10 minutes in. I'm sorry. (laughs) No, it's good. I think I'll probably just be very quick. Um, honestly, probably super quick so we can get people out of here. Um, you can tell I hosted large rooms of people because I said <laughs> that, that was such get a church thing out of to here. Say. Yeah. It wasn't it. It was, we got to get them home. The football game's on. Um, I kind of was just thinking about, I didn't learn this this week, but it was a good review. Um, the idea of transference and counter transference, which I think oddly enough ties somewhat into this. Let me, let me just
1: insert. I wrote, (laughs) I wrote my, uh, one of my final papers on transference and literature. So I'm, I'm excited to hear what this is.
0: Oh, perfect. So transference and counter transference um, can be something that can be very honestly hindering to the counseling experience Um, So let me explain what transference is. Transference is if I'm sitting across from a person and I'm projecting my own experiences, positive or negative, that that other person makes me feel like, like, let's say I'm sitting across from a person and they make me think of an experience I had with a bully or an experience I had with a former boss or an experience I had with a former person that I really liked. And and they make me feel that same way. And I'm applying those experiences onto that person, it dilutes and ruins the experience I'm having with that person. Because now I've moved out of this experience, and into past experiences, whether good or bad. If it's a good past experience, I'm making this person more than they are. And I'm holding them to a bad standard. If it's a bad past experience, then I'm coloring everything this person says in a bad or a kind of like critical light. Um, So transference is normally referred to as what the client will experience with the counselor. Like maybe this client has been hurt very badly in the past or has a significant other who abused them and was very critical of them. And now if you're not careful and you're providing feedback, which you should be asking for permission, you shouldn't just be going in there and being a guru and telling them how to live their life. But they still might flinch, even just internally flinch, if you start pushing too close or, or pushing back, or even if you're just not fully accepting, because that's going to bring back to them these experience of, oh, you're just like that other person who hurt me. So I need to start treating you the same way and close this thing down. So that's transference Um, countertransference is how the client or the counselor will do that with their client. Um, So I was writing in my addictions class about this and I was responding to a discussion post that actually made me think about this differently. So our dad, um, before either of us were born had, I'm, I'm not, I should probably know what it is. Uh, but he had a, a substance abuse disorder. He was really stuck in a cycle of addiction when it came to uh, came to drugs. Um, but he broke out of that amazing story. And he's an amazing father. Um, and that, that's so awesome that I have this experience that my father beat drugs. And when he tells it, it was hard work, but it seemed like manageable and doable. So if I'm sitting across from a client who is dealing with, Man, that loud car. If I'm sitting across from a client who is dealing with addiction, countertransference could be me saying, Well, this was easy for my dad to do. It will be easy for this client to do. And now I'm holding this client to the expectations of the experience of my dad. And maybe even to have the same want to quit as dad did when they might not be anywhere near that stage in the recovery process. They might push back. They might not want to change. They might still be deciding if they do want to change. And if I have that counter-transference where I'm holding that against them, I'm going to probably do more harm than good. Um, or maybe you have a client, you have a friend who you feel like you failed to addiction. Maybe you had a loved one who passed away because of addiction. And now you see that same now that same feeling of failure begins to bubble up in your own heart when your client relapses. Or when your client seems like they're not committed to recovery, you start feeling that same sense of fear of I have to get overly involved. I have to make sure I can do whatever I can to help this client. And you start overstepping your bounds and still ruining the counseling experience. So there's this idea where you're supposed to be able to, which I think is so interesting talking about what we're talking about. You need to be able to stay impartial while also... Having meaning and empathy and love for the person to to make it through the process, through the ups and downs, without letting your own fears or your own mindsets and framework for how you want things to happen to force you to treat a client a certain way, if that makes sense.
1: Yeah, I think. Okay, so I think I understand countertransference the way you describe it better than just transference so regular old transference that's that's very similar to just like projection right yeah yep and that goes in which direction from the client to
0: the counselor Uh, in the counseling relationship yes transference is what the client how the client reacts to the counselor okay counter transference is how the counselor reacts to the client yeah So it's just interesting the way this whole, you know, especially near the end of the conversation, because if I'm, you know, transferring onto anyone I interact with based on my past experiences, okay, going back again to what you're saying about like the war on terror. Oh, well, that war was really just about this, this, and this. So this war is the exact same way. You know, it, it can apply in so many different cases where it's like, well, I was burned once I might be burned again, or glass half full, hey, this went well, once it'll go well again. Um, but, you know, although there is value in kind of having a framework of like, hey, this might keep me safe by doing this, or hey, this is a good thing, I should go with this. You know, it's, it's worth taking every experience as at its own merit. I guess. And as its own separate experience, that's kind of how we're trained with when dealing with clients is like we have theory and we have understandings and we stay up to date on making sure that we understand truly how addictions work and how different cultures work and that we understand these different frameworks and how different people live their lives. We understand these things, but we can never let those understandings, no matter how scientific they be, Force us into a one size fits all approach to clients because every client is different. They might be from a from a culture where a majority of people in this culture act this way, but what if they don't like that just means you're gonna cause harm by treating them like they're everyone else or i i guess I guess that's moved away from what transference is but I think in a nutshell, transference is just I guess in a positive way.
1: That's I'm what I was gonna try to guess
0: what is if is there ever a scenario where it is a positive thing, or is it is it always considered negative? I think in counseling it can happen in a positive way, but more often than not, it's going to be negative. Um like let's like, say
1: go ahead. Well, I was gonna Okay, so hypothetically, like this is what I could think could be positive transference is like if, if you as the counselor, actually, I'm playing this out in my head and this might be totally not ethical, <laughs> but say that you as the counselor had like overcome addiction and you are meeting with a client who is needing to overcome addiction and you tell them your story of how you did it. And you tell them your story of your moment of breakthrough where you thought you couldn't do it and something happened inside you and you did it and look where you are now. And by telling that story, the, uh, the, the patient feels like they've done it. Not only do they feel like they can do it like in their head, but in their heart, they're like, oh, this is possible. That's like what I think of. But also, I don't know if that's I don't know if you're you're supposed to be
0: counseling with personal experiences. You no, you can. Um, there are moments where a self-disclosure like that, if you think it will be beneficial to the client, can be very helpful. But the reason I have to explain it that way is because there might be times, you know, when it's not. Um, I think that the positives okay, so that counter transference happens i'm a client i'm a counselor dealing with a client who 's gone through an addiction that i 've gone through. The counter transference begins to well up. I see myself in that person I think that 's kind of the juncture point between good and bad happening i see it, i can I can do good by managing that and saying this person is not me. But if I can get through it, this person can too. There's hope for the person across from me. Their story can be like mine and many others, and I'll help inspire hope. And you kind of leave it there and then begin treating the person again out of that, like their unique framework. I think negative counter transference, um, which is way more often the case, is well, I got through this, so this person can. I'm an expert, and this person should listen to me because I, I made it through, and if they just do what I think they should do, and if they're at where I think they should be at, like they'll get through it. And maybe I have that a breakthrough moment, you know? Like what you said, maybe for me, my breakthrough moment was Alcoholics Anonymous, which I love, by the way. I'm not, I'm not saying anything bad about them. I legitimately have been blown away by the AA meetings I've gone to and witnessed, but let's say for me, AA was incredibly impactful and helped me. Bad transference is now going to be me saying, you have to go to AA. Hey, client, you have to go to AA. You yeah. have to go. You're going to love it. It's going to change your life. It's going to be so impactful. Here's all these powerful stories. And the client's like, I don't feel comfortable with that. I don't want to go to AA. Or all of a sudden, the, the client just begins to feel like, hey, I don't really want to make it through. Like it, it kind of feels like my counselor has stopped talking to me and treating me as an individual. And now they're just trying to slap a cure on me, which, believe it or not, research shows that, like, clients can pick up on that. What? Um, <laughs> and it kind of just can ruin the relationship, which I think is why when countertransference does build up, it will build up. You kind of have to catch it and say, like, OK, hey, this is my experience that's going on. How am I going to deal with it as I'm sitting across from this other person? Yeah. So one of the the chapters,
1: I like that a lot. One of the chapters in Steel Like an Artist is about how all advice is autobiographical. And Mm. you're being trained to not do that. You're being trained to give advice on the merits of good advice, not say, you know, like, when I think all advice is autobiographical. um, Like I remember. <laughs> okay. So one time I remember being like in the youth room at church and some, just some random student did this. So like nobody is, is going to know who I'm talking about, but they were talking about like how God can deliver you from anything, even like a porn addiction. And When he said that, I was like squirming so hard because I was like, you, you think you're being general, (laughs) but you're not like, you're totally like showing your cards right now. Um, Mm -hmm. and so that, that is, I mean, that's not transference, but the idea of like, yeah, I'm putting on you what I've lived through and experienced. So that's kind of it.
0: Is that it? OK, I'm, I'm trying to think of if that student, the way that they shared that, that that might have been counter transference. They're saying to somebody else, hey, God can help you like he helped me when he helped me with porn. Um, so that's kind of I think that would be an example of counter transference. But I think the way you defined it, there is 100 percent like accurate. It is essentially advice. It can turn into This is my experience and what I know and how it works best. And I think why we're being trained to not give advice um, and instead to, I think it's even a step further. It's not just giving advice based on the merit of, you know, what is good advice. I think it's like giving good advice to a specific person in a specific case. Because you could give good advice to someone like maybe you're dealing with someone who is not at the stage of change where they're actually motivated to change Mm. and you're loading them up with books. You're loading them up with, Oh, if you read these books and if you journal and if you start taking a tally of your, of your change and if you start doing all these things and find a sponsor and all of a sudden this person who's not motivated, like they're not to the point where they're personally motivated to change now feels all this, extrinsic pressure to change which is gonna make them feel a lot of stress and a lot of anxiety because maybe they don't even want this yet and then they're gonna fail and they might just drop out of counseling Mm -hmm. because they're like you you gave me good advice that didn't meet me where i was at and it actually made me fail and feel so demotivated that i quit so it's like there is uh, pre palliative maybe. Okay. Sorry. I'm mumbling to myself. Like even in addiction treatment, one thing I saw is there's stages of care. Um, what I think, I think it's like, I I could be butchering this, but the first stage is like pre palliative care and then it's, um, stabilization and then it's recovery and then it's maintenance I think is the four stages, I could be wrong. But the first stage, like pre palliative I really hope I'm saying this right. I feel like I'm butchering it. That whole stage of care is acknowledging that the client's not really ready to change. They don't see their addiction as the main reason that they're in therapy. So your goal is to maybe motivate them to change. If you see a window of opportunity, you don't force it. Because your main role of care is just to keep them connected to the care process and to organizations that can help them to change when they eventually have the inspiration to do it themselves. And through like motivational interviewing and tools and techniques like that, you can still inspire change and help lead them to it. But if you during that stage say, you know what, what you really need to do is fix your addiction, which is good advice. They should. But that good advice in the wrong context at the wrong time will damage the therapeutic relationship and might make it so that person never goes to counseling, never actually, maybe they even say, everyone just keeps telling me I need to change and I don't want to. So I'm done. I'm done mm. trying to change. Does that make sense? So that's why transference and counter transference can be very, very dangerous, even if in a good sense, Um, because it can just cause you to pull yourself out of the moment and just start to slap on like advice or facts or stuff like that, which is really interesting. Cause I, I think a little bit when I went into counseling, the counseling field, uh, there was a part of my ego that was like, oh man, I'm going to be able to give such good advice And I've said it in classes and I've heard so many other people say it in classes. We're like, I'm the person that my friends go to when they need advice. But that is not what this job is. Yeah. I mean, there are times where you might say like, would you offer if I would, would you mind if I offered a different perspective? I hear you saying this, but I think you might actually be, you're kind of, you're able to give advice, but you should do it. With the permission of a client. And even when you're asking permission for the client, you should be able to yourself know, I think they're in the stage where this could actually be helpful. Because if not, you could you could do more harm than good, which is terrifying. <laughs> yeah, sorry, I'm I'm just thinking about something.
1: So this is like a real life example. I have had people ask me about uh, you know, if they're like graduating and they're they're trying to decide if they're going to go to college or not, and more or less ask my advice. And so say that say that somebody is graduating high school and they kind of think that they're going to go to college for English and they come and ask me because they're like, oh, well, Tim seems pretty happy. I'm going to ask him what he thinks. That sort of
0: is that transference? I don't know. I don't know if that necessarily is. That might be more just seeking advice. I think transference would be that person who's seeking advice from you. Um, There's someone else in their life. Who they viewed as maybe it's a dad or maybe it's their own brother. Maybe it's a teacher. And as they're asking you for advice. They're framing you up in their mind as that person yes
1: yes and so they're
0: looking for like your yes isn't just your yes as tim Nisley, who's going to college at SEU in florida for an english degree your yes is people who are older than me know better people who are smarter than me people who i perceive as smarter than me know what's best for me and i should do what they want
1: okay yeah yeah it is very uh Even in literature, so the reason that I wrote my paper on transference is because I was really fascinated by it. And I I was fascinated, but I wasn't sure if I was grasping it right. So I was like, well, if I write a paper on it, then my professor will correct me if I'm wrong. And I don't think he gave me like the kind of feedback I was looking for. So I am still a little bit grasping at it, but it is very interesting. It's not that far away from like catharsis either.
0: Yeah, it's. I think it's very similar. Okay, so maybe this, this might be transference. I've mentioned the song Creep several times. When I listen to Creep, it takes me back to middle school, high school me when I really wasn't happy with myself and when I would have used that word to identify myself. I listen to that song and I apply onto that song my own filter. I don't even know if that works. No, that's not it because that... No, no, no. What
1: creep would be, would be the popular kid who is always perfect. Nothing wrong with them. Listening to that song and feeling like a creep. That would be transfer.
0: Uh,
1: yes. Cause like in yes. literature, what it is, and this can happen with the good guy or the bad guy, but you know, you're reading a story about, uh, sailing the seven seas and then you beat the pirates and you walk away feeling like you just won a battle against the pirates. Like that's what it is mm-hmm. in literature. Um, yeah. It it is a little hard to
0: pin down for me still. And I think they might be different.
1: I'm Similar sure they enough
0: are. that you could use the same word, but different enough that you start to get into trouble when you try to make the correlation to one-to-one. Yeah,
1: definitely. And also, like I said. Because uh, that paper, I'm only like 60% sure I know what I'm talking about. So with reference to literature.
0: That is really interesting, though, because I know that that was a, that's a thing about Dungeons and Dragons, too, that people quote as being so powerful is it's not like you and Ned and Isaac and Ty defeating the dragon and saving the day, like from a board game perspective, like you roll the dice and you did it. You have this like shared experience of like your characters in this crazy like you see the picture in your head. And I think that's why that that game can be so powerful to so many people, because it's not just which some people are going to be like, wow, game, a bunch of nerds. But like, that's the same reason why uh the last Indians or I'm sorry, the last Guardians, I'm sorry, Guardians, Yankees game sucked. I wasn't out there on the field playing, but when my team lost, I felt as if I was out there with the team. That's why I stand and cheer. That's why, because I'm putting myself in that, that same sphere. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
1: Did you know that when your team loses, maybe this is a fun fact to wrap it up on, um, just editorial note, but when your sports team loses, uh, your testosterone drops by like an astronomical percentage. Like it might be forty, mm. it might be seventy percent. I I know that it there's a big be difference between those two. It might be hundred twenty. It might, but it is seriously like a huge chunk by you watching your team lose. You feel like, I mean, I don't even know what the what the proxy for that is like losing your testosterone, but it it's like been proven. So hmm. yeah. Transference question mark.
0: Transference question mark. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the episode. Hope you guys enjoyed it. Thanks again for listening. You can find this and all of our episodes at our Substack, which is coming along nicely. And if you're looking for something to read, maybe a nice little, five, 10 minute reads, some poetry, maybe even some music. You can find all of Tim's stuff at nicely.substack.com. He writes weekly. It's great. I know I'm biased, but you guys really love it. And we hope you guys will join us on the next episode.